Hello and welcome to Supertalk. My name is Sonia Hanyadi and I'm the Government Relations and Policy Advisor with AIST. Today we'll be looking at cognitive decline in the retirement system. What more can trustees do to assist ageing Australians with achieving positive retirement outcomes? Joining me is Dr Diane Hosking, a Senior Research Officer at National Seniors Australia and Ian Yates, Chief Executive of CODA. Today's podcast was originally a webinar for our members. Today you'll hear a robust discussion with Diane and Ian on what more trustees can do to assist those members with cognitive decline. So excellent. Um, we'll launch right into it. So thank you so much for joining us today um, for our webinar on cognitive decline and the retirement system. What more can trustees do to assist aging Australians with achieving positive retirement outcomes? In the spirit of reconciliation, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which we engage in this session, no matter where we might be in Australia. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. A few things to be aware of before we commence today's webinar. You're welcome to submit questions by clicking on the Q&A speech bubble in the toolbar at the bottom of the screen. Please note we will not be answering questions through the chat function. To help improve your experience, uh, there is a short feedback survey which will appear in your browser at the conclusion of this webinar. So please complete that to provide us with valuable feedback. The more feedback we get, the more these sessions can be targeted to your needs. Uh, please note CPD allocation for this webinar will be automatically recorded at the conclusion of the session as well. So a big welcome to our two panel speakers today. We have Dr. Diane Hosking and Ian Yates. Diane is a Senior Research Officer at National Seniors Australia. Diane brings with her experience from the Centre for Research into Ageing, Health and Wellbeing at ANU, where she worked on a number of projects focused on the outcomes and prevention of cognitive decline and dementia. Our second speaker today is Ian Yates, uh, which I'm sure many of you know. He's the Chief Executive of CODA Australia, the national peak consumer body for older Australians. Ian is also chair of the newly established Aging and Aged Care Council of Elders, a member of the National Aged Care Advisory Council and Aged Care Quality and Safety Advisory Council. So welcome to you both. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Um, excellent. Uh, so as the population gets older, the number of Australians with some cognitive impairment is expected to increase. While there's much policy attention given to issues related to dementia, there's less discussion on mild cognitive decline. Um, Australia's retirement income system is complex and the population engagement with superannuation varies. So we know the older that someone, someone becomes, the more likely they will be to engage with their superannuation and their super fund. We also know that financial mistakes are more likely to occur with damaging consequences when we combine system complexity alongside poor financial literacy, ageing and cognitive risks. So today's discussion will centre on what trustees and policymakers could consider when developing better strategies and systems to address financial risks at earlier stages of someone's experience of cognitive impairment. So Diane, I'd like to start with you mm -hmm. um, and what we mean by mild cognitive decline. So the ARC Centre of Excellence in Population Aging Research. CEPA recently released some excellent uh, research titled Financial Decision Making for and in Old Age. That was a mouthful. But in that study, it stated that it's estimated between 5 and 20% of the population age 60 plus may have experienced mild cognitive impairment. 
Can you tell us exactly what that might mean? Okay, thank you, Sonia. Um, okay, so I think the first thing just to note is that some degree of age-related change in our cognition is normal. And that starts occurring from around about our mid-20s, believe it or not. Certainly in um, abilities like, you know, speed processing, um, working memory, those things start to decline really early on. But that's that's normal and it's it's part of our healthy cognitive ageing. Um, some abilities don't change. So, you know, our verbal abilities, et cetera, they stay pretty standard, pretty, pretty much the same. When we talk about mild cognitive decline or mild cognitive impairment, that's like a stage in between um, normal cognitive ageing and dementia. And that those figures of 5 to 20% are actually really hard to um, to envisage because it, it depends so much on the way that cognition is measured, a whole lot of other things, whether, whether you have rigorous or whether you have fairly flexible um, standards on what's measured. But I guess the thing to be aware of is that with mild cognitive impairment, it's, it, is a, it is not healthy brain ageing. Um, and also the things that you can expect to see, so it'll be things like, I guess, people have trouble planning, they have trouble, they have sort of trouble remembering things that will happen more often. And friends and family start to notice those things as well, and the person themselves. Also, um, they might, they also don't sort of do as well on cognitive tests as you would expect for their age and for their level of education. So they're the type of criteria that I suppose you talk about when you talk about mild cognitive impairment. And people with mild cognitive impairment are more likely to get dementia, but it's not guaranteed. So someone can have mild cognitive impairment and this is not actually impacting that much on their everyday life, but they are struggling with particularly with planning, with memory, they have memory issues, and they're starting to notice the decline themselves. So they would be the main things to, to look out for. Excellent. Um, Ian, do you have anything you'd like to add to that? Uh, just to note, I think, I mean, I agree with what Darren said, but just to note that that 5 to 20% is a significantly wide range um, and, you know, there's a lot more work to be done in this area and there are different different views. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a clinical specialist in this area, um, and, and uh and you know i'll make some comments about where we ought to be using that expertise uh, as we go along uh, and the other just to, to, to make the point is i don't think there's any particular magic about 60 uh but i and Diane might correct me but i think there are there are increasing incidences later uh in later cohorts and we do have a disturbing uh tendency uh partly because of the ageism that we might touch on later to kind of view everybody over the age of 60, or it depends where you are, if it's workforce issues, it's probably over 50, um, as the same, whereas there are very significant differences by cohorts of even just five years uh, as, you, as you go up. Can I just add that? Um, yeah, I'd really like to um, affirm what Ian's saying there too, because it is very easy just to assume that people have got cognitive impairment. Um, and as, as Ian said, it varies a lot and it's very much it's something that increases with age. So the proportion of people that would have cognitive impairment in their early 60s is, is actually really, really small. So it's probably more like 1% or 2%, if not lower. 
And then it increases quite quickly up into the 70s and the 80s. So we've really got to be aware not to stereotype people just because they're having a few, you know, a bad day memory-wise to think automatically that that's cognitive impairment. Yeah. And, and indeed, that they might be having a financial literacy or a digital literacy yeah. moment rather than a cognitive impairment moment. Absolutely. That is so critical. We'll probably get on to some of that a bit later on, I suspect. Absolutely. And you've touched on some, some important elements, particularly about systems and processes that super funds can put in place because they are, super funds are dealing with people um, post-preservation age, so 65 plus. Um, and um, over those years that there are going to have to be financial decision-making that's occurring. Mm. Um, so we need to be talking about the best mechanisms to support those people who may have different levels of financial literacy. And when that cognitive impairment uh, ingredient can come into it or, or play, uh, play a role in that, it, it becomes complex. So, Ian, in your experience, what... What do you see older Australians wanting in terms of support from their super funds or their financial institution? Are they raising these sorts of issues? Um, they're certainly raising issues about uh, what I would call financial literacy, um, understanding uh, what their options are going forward. I, I don't think they're particularly raising. Uh, people don't like to raise cognitive impairment issues uh, because uh, just as Diane suggested earlier that that some people interacting confuse cognitive impairment with, with more significant dementia. Uh, there are older people who don't want to kind of know about their cognitive impairment because they might be a bit scared they're getting dementia, uh, whereas they're probably not. So, um, but look, I think, I think what I would say is that we can discuss a range of what I would call proactive and positive strategies. Um, for example, the more financially literate, the more informed you are, ahead of you know experiencing some cognitive impairment the better equipped you're going to be notwithstanding your cognitive impairment and the better equipped you'll be to get back on track if i can put it that way if you're actually reasonably literate anyway so the old adage of how do we as a super fund engage as early as we can now you know i know we all know there's not a lot of value in trying to engage the 20 pluses uh, in talking about their retirement income but at the earliest points that those kind of triggers of getting people thinking and interacting with their with the fund is really important. What we do know is that uh, our constituency, older Australians, and particularly people say 50 plus, do actually look to their super funds as a trusted source of information and potential advice about what they should be doing. Um, and we hope that with the retirement income covenant and so on that we're going to see lots more efforts to engage early in that process. Then I think also the, the opportunities to, to do uh, nudging, to do guidance, uh, and you know we can talk a little bit later about uh, the quality advice review and what the policy kind of implications are there, but we certainly see, uh, leaving the regulatory issues aside for a minute, we certainly see significant opportunity for funds to provide guidance that even though they don't have enough kind of personal financial info, personal information to do personal financial advice, that they can direct people by, you know, for example, are you a part of a couple? Do you own a house? Do you, you know, those questions that can then give people 
um, much more informed advice um, and uh, about their options uh, going forward. And, and as I say, the more that people are engaged, the more equipped they'll be with cognitive impairment. Then, and I don't know whether you want to go into this now, I think there are quite a lot of measures when you go to things like scams, uh, elder abuse, uh, and um, misinformed financial decision-making where it is possible for, to set up systems that and that look at what the person is doing and just send up an orange flag, if I can say that, that rather than a red flag that say, this is not typical behaviour for this person. Should we be raising a question? And it occurred to me when, when I was thinking about this seminar that we've been doing quite a lot for years now with the banks mm. who deal with institutes. And I and it struck me that we haven't been doing it with the super funds. We haven't haven't been, and, and there's a whole lot of issues that the banks have been dealing with. Uh, you know, you want to talk later about what what how much load you're putting on frontline staff. That's an issue that banks have had to work through. Um, so there are there are a range of measures that can be called corrective and intervention measures that deal with those kind of situations where someone is probably being scammed. Um, or, or or making a really objectively silly decision, even if they're not being scammed or they're experiencing elder abuse, where flags can rise uh, quickly, recognising that it's tricky. You know, there are privacy issues, there are respect for assumptions of autonomy. Let's not assume everybody over a certain age, as we said already, is, is going to be suffering cognitive decline. Um, let's not make those assumptions, but ways in which you can actually trigger and ask the person, are you really clear what you're doing here? Recognising, and we recognise this all the time in terms of the scam world, that there are people who you can't convince that they're being scammed, even though they clearly are. So, Diane, as uh, Ian was speaking, I saw you nod your head, particularly at the banking sector comment. What's been your experience on that? I think... I was more, I was thinking the same, along the same lines as Ian, around collaborating more perhaps with the banks by having, I mean, at the moment, a lot of systems that older people engage with are so siloed that, you know, for the older person themselves, they're experiencing all these things simultaneously, whether it's superannuation, banking issues, um, Centrelink issues, aged care issues, all of those things they're experiencing simultaneously. So... With the banks, I mean, as, as Ian said, you know, the banks have these um, these flags in place, if you like, and, and check check lists in place. Um, and given that superannuation funds are also handling people's finances, then if there's a real opportunity then for collaboration, a lot more collaboration between banks, perhaps, and um, trustees to be able to put in place age-friendly systems that will. Um, protect people without obviously making too many assumptions and of course as you said there's a whole lot of privacy issues etc but yes that's that's one of the things the other thing I think that's really important is to just is to have age-friendly systems in the sense that um, rather than thinking about cognitive decline explicitly but be, be aware that for everybody um, a lot of these systems are really challenging and particularly engaging online, is, is a second language for a lot of our older members, for example. Mm -hmm. So it's like people are trying to take in incredibly complex information, but it is not in their day-to-day their -day first language way of communicating. 
So I think it is critical to engage with older people themselves and find out more around what is useful, what is helpful, what do they need in the way that things are communicated um, to help understand better. So that's really important as well. I agree. And oh, off track there a bit, sorry. <laughs> no, I, no, and I love this, I love this free flow discourse that we're having because I will jump around a bit because now I do want to talk about financial crime and exploitation. So at, at the engagement that I've had with some of our member funds is in that financial crime and fraud uh, space where people are recognising or dealing with their customers, their members, and there might be behaviours that become apparent where there might be some memory loss um, or there might uh, that memory loss is probably the biggest behaviour where they're, they're, there's been a request that's made and then the member doesn't remember making it and then there might be a third party involved, like a financial advisor or a family member. And that's when our um, funds will pick up the phone and speak to that member directly. So it's not relying on the member using a, a particular system to navigate. They're actually having a one-on-one -on -one conversation to make sure that that member is okay and that the request is, is the one that they've made and they're okay with that request. Yeah. But, but given that super funds are dealing with an, an older cohort and they have to see this sort of behaviour that's atypical that might stand out to them, so they, they needs, it's not the day-to-day -day transactions that they're, they're seeing or observing. Um, what, fun, what can funds do to help people who may be in that space where they're um, suffering cognitive decline and putting age aside, yeah. suffering a cognitive decline um, and that they are a target for scammers because they'll be in that space where they're not fully in a dementia phase where they're not able to make any decisions. They're in a phase where perhaps the decision-making is skewed. What, I know that's a big question. What strategies and processes can people put in place? And, and Diane, I'm looking at you first, <laughs> then I'll throw to Ian. <laughs> yeah, it's a, very, it's a very big question that you're asking. And I think one of the challenges there is just knowing what is possible within your systems and processes to, to be able to do, okay? I mean, some of this is also around a lot of older people who, who are experiencing cognitive decline, even if they're not calling it that explicitly, will be reaching out to family members and to carers and to other people who are significant in their lives to assist them with their day-to-day -day financial and other activities. So um, obviously those people are trusted by the person, whether they and, and of course that puts that person at risk if the person is not trustworthy. But I think it's probably really important for um for super funds or super trustees to be able to enable um, trusted um, family members in the same way as we do in aged care, for instance, or in Centrelink interactions or whatever, but to have processes in place where people can be supported if they need that support. Um, because sometimes the fund itself is not going to, or the trustees themselves are not going to necessarily know what that person wants or what is best for that person. Um, yeah, it is. It's a really difficult. It's a really difficult line to walk because, as you say, people are vulnerable to being scammed by family members. We know that that's that's one of the major forms of abuse that happen. But nonetheless, it's also something, and I know this from personal experience. 
I, that, you know, sometimes elderly family members really do need and are looking for that support and trusted support from another. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I first to build on what uh, Diana said, I think uh, that it that and in general, funds ought to be doing uh, in, as part of their kind of education and engagement with members, raising the question of do you have have you uh, thought of appointing an enduring power of attorney? Um, and I'll quote Kate Patterson, the Age Discrimination Commissioner, who's been on a real campaign with us about this. This is not something that you raise just because people are getting older, although it's utility. It's something, as she says, that people ought to have at any age. You know, you fall off your bike and bang your head and you're not capable anymore and who's going to look after you and is that going to be sorted out by someone you trusted or by someone that then gets appointed? And there are, are ways of raising those issues with people so that that you've got that as a, as a fallback. Um, secondly, as I said earlier, um, using a, a range of measures that are about nudging people firstly into into questioning whether what they're doing is just because they've forgotten that you know that's not actually what they should be doing um uh, nudging them that way through to you know the uh, the tr having people trained to watch for unusual you know unusual actions uh what the banks do is train their frontline people to be alert to that and then they actually refer them to specialist teams. Now, so there are specialist elder abuse teams in most banks, in the big ones anyway, who, who then can come in with a much higher level of training to, to try and ascertain what's going on. So you're not asking uh, every, you know, every staff member to, to be alert. To, certainly you're asking them to be alert, but you're not asking them to be an expert in that area. Uh, and again, and, and I, I have to say, it's really only leading up to this. I, while I'm very familiar with the operations of many super funds through the work we're doing in the retirement income space, it's not a conversation that I recall having uh, with colleagues around, say, our consumer-focused retirement income roundtable um, that I recall having about what systems super funds have to put flags. You, We all know that if you go, for example, go overseas, uh, and charge something to your credit account without having let your bank know, you're going to get flagged and you're going to get authentication requests. And is this really you buying this thing in Serbia or, you know? Well, there will be equivalent kind of things that happen in terms of managing your superannuation fund and that and that kind of thing needs to be there as well. Uh, it's because, in fact, people are more likely to have more money in their super funds than they're likely to have in their bank accounts, which is, of course, why they then become a target. Absolutely. And you've raised a, a couple of excellent points. So I'm going to spill one bean. Um, so like I mentioned before, we're holding in um, a special interest group on vulnerable members. And, and as a part of that, we, we'll be talking about a recent survey that AOST undertook. And one of those questions in that survey, Ian, was about specialist teams and whether super funds do have specialist teams for certain escalation points for vulnerability. Um, and I was surprised with the feedback that not everyone is doing that. So it's great to hear that in the banking space that it is a common thing to be doing in terms of um, ensuring that frontline staff aren't always taking the weight, unduly taking the weight, and there are escalation processes that will ensure that the customer, banking customer, 
is receiving that specialist advice and support. Um, so flowing on from that, I really want to talk about um, some of those internal policies that um, trustees can have in place to help identify uh, members that may be vulnerable because of cognitive impairment. Um, does it put too much pressure on, on um, call centre staff or frontline staff to be aware or recognise or consider prompts from a person? Like one example I've used over and over again is, is someone who calls weekly um, to know where their pension is being deposited because they can't remember um, what, which bank account it is. So, um, Diane, I'll start with you. Do you think that places too much pressure on frontline staff? What what more could be done in terms of processes or systems? Yeah, I don't know about I, I don't know about too much pressure so much. I think it's more about being aware of of particular behaviours that people may be showing. Um, so if, the one that you give, for instance, I mean, there could be a lot of reasons for that type of behaviour. But the main thing is, okay, this person is exhibiting this behaviour. This is this is concerning. Um, and yeah, as Ian said, it'd be good to then have someone to refer that to if the person, if the frontline staff person was feeling concerned about it. But in terms of going, oh, I feel the need that I have to identify this person as having potential cognitive impairment, I don't think that's realistic or appropriate. Um, so it is much more being aware that there are certain behaviours that people may exhibit for whatever type of vulnerability, okay? There are lots of potential reasons why people may be showing behaviours, you know, ranging from grief and loss to health issues, all sorts of things, leaving aside the cognitive impairment explicitly that could cause some of those behaviours that you'd be concerned about. As you're saying, it's more a case of being able to be sensitive to them and to be able to flag them and then have systems in place to deal with the behaviours, I think, yeah. And training training is really critical, of course, to and to have the right staff as as a call centre, um, as as the first contact people. And I mean, and I just put a plug in here. I think it's really important to be always having a diverse workforce in this area. So to ensure that you've got older people on those phones, because for a start, the people that are talking are going to be happier talking to somebody that they feel comfortable with and having an older person, I think, would be very helpful in those situations. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's an important point and it's it's about diversity in all its dimensions because yeah. you might mistake uh, for cognitive impairment somebody who is both having a digital issue, um, a systems issue and a language issue. Uh, yeah. And language issues can grow as people grow older. Um, I think also it goes to the quality of the degree of interaction, um, if you like, customer service that you're doing overall, um, that that creates a supportive environment. And and I'm not going to name names, but uh, I personally, um, and you know, I'm I'm a reasonably competent professional dealing with the financial world. Um, and I happen to be married to someone who was an accountant and deals with it. And we recently um, had our super fund merge into a much larger super fund. And I have to tell you that we are still struggling to get our heads around where we are in this larger super fund because the quality of interaction is less. Um, and it's not clear to us where we go. Uh, and, you know, I think uh, that, that that 
but then because of that, we we become somewhat unresponsive to the kind of automated stuff we're getting because we need to, we, you know, we don't have the, for example, um, and this may this may not be feasible, but I can tell you that if if there is someone who is dealing with cognitive impairment but wants support in that process, uh, having a someone who's their relationship manager, having the same person contacting them, knowing the history. And if that's not possible to ensure that that history is really richly written down and that a fairly minimal number of people uh, are the people making that contact so that that, that person is not further confused by the fact that this day it was Fred and this day it was, you know, Athena and this day it was someone else. Who's who's it that's contacted you? And then that leads to confusion when you get scammers and so on coming. So building the relationship is really important. It's important for all your members, but it's equal, it's much more important for people who have any of those challenges. Yeah. Um, wow, you've that's some incredible insights. Um, and if you're finding that hard to navigate, then um, it, it, I, I can't imagine what someone who's experiencing low financial literacy or perhaps co cognitive impairment might be experiencing as well. So. Um, so you, you've you've touched on a couple of things there that it's you're finding it challenging, or it, you would ex, you would expect that it might be challenging for someone in some circumstances to engage with their super fund if there's not that um, direct contact or ability to, particularly if they're not able to navigate systems or the web, that they might be um, disengaged and therefore decrease their financial literacy. So. Yeah. What more can they be doing? What more can super funds do? I love that idea about having direct contact, perhaps one um, person that might be engaged with a certain um, sector of their membership and that's the team that they call and that's the, they, so they know that they're speaking, when they're speaking with Sonia, that they're speaking with that trusted person in their super fund. Mm. What other, like in terms of financial literacy, again, the, we're talking about the retirement income covenant. That needs to be um, financial uh, information uh, for retirement for all Australians. Um, Ian, I'm going to go throw back to you. What do you see like in terms of the challenges for superannuation funds, just getting their heads around it now? What should they be thinking about when approaching financial literacy, the retirement income covenant, and older Australians? Um, big so, ones. Yeah, uh, yeah, they are big ones that we've been talking about them for, for years now. And, and you know, I, I mean, I note uh, that the, at the recent ASIC conference, um, I can name names because it's in the public arena, but Paul Schroeder from Australian Super was floating the notion that people ought to be defaulted into a, into an income stream product. Um, we we wouldn't necessarily support that, but but the notion that there ought to be uh, strong options and nudges and explanations about the value of, of products uh, that the funds are developing or or linking with developers to provide, and having conversations with people about how to optimize uh, their retirement income. Uh, hasn't been part of the culture of superannuation. The culture of superannuation has been let's build a big nest egg. Um, and to quote, you know, from one of the very strong advertising, it's good if your nest egg contains very big golden eggs. Um, 
But the question is, you know, when are those eggs going to actually hatch? Uh, because that's what it's all about. The, the hatching is to produce an income stream in, in retirement. That's not what most people have got in their heads uh, because they've never been, have not been talked about like that. Uh, so it's that kind of culture shift. The other, the other thing I'd say, and I think Diane said this really early in passing, if, if a fund wants to really get on top of this, it needs to actually do some engagement and co-design with its members or a group of funds do that collectively together. Uh, and, you know, it, it's, it's good and it's really valuable that you were doing this with Diane and I. But actually, the, the, you know, we're just putting in lots of submissions at the moment of, as part of the aged care reform process uh, on all sorts of initiatives. Our submissions are re replete now with what older people have said about those initiatives, real concrete situations that we're quoting back to the department that this will work and has been supported by these people because of this, or this won't work for these real-time, real-life reasons. Yeah. Uh, the same will apply to, in, to your people, something that to all of us looks professionally a smooth and great idea um, and might not work in the, in the real world of older people. So actually engaging and looking for co-design opportunities in this process is really important. Yeah, very much so. And testing. Also, you know, these nudges that, that we talk about, um, nudging towards particular products or nudging towards particular pathways, will often make perfect sense from a typical financial literacy point of view. They will not make perfect sense necessarily to the older person themselves who may have a whole range of other priorities and other stresses that are not normally considered within the financial sector. I mean, I think the perfect one, and I've spoken about this before, but the perfect one is fear, incredible fear of health costs, okay? So, you know, we talk about trying to get people to spend to, to spend their capital, but when they are terrified that they are going to somehow not be able to afford aged care, have all sorts of health costs and, and be left without being able to have that money available, then that is they don't care about the possibility of having greater income at the time. They just want to make sure they've got that nest egg for whatever that terrible thing is going to be in the future. So to shift this type of mentality is really challenging. And for to be fair, there are a lot of good reasons for having that type of mentality from an older person's perspective. Um, so I think it is really critical to engage with older people themselves to understand more about the perspectives that are driving their financial decisions rather than just looking at it and going, well, that decision doesn't actually make sense. We need to change it or we need to give these defaults that will lead to better, better outcomes. Um, yeah, I think that's really important. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and that goes to addressing not just what you were seeing, which is the symptom, which is this is not wise behaviour. Um, to addressing what is the underlying driver yeah. of that unwise behaviour, uh, because uh, the, the the person's anxiety might be real, and and as Don said, there are real challenges there. But they will tend, uh, as a mass, I think the retirement income review showed us this, to overcompensate for those things. So part of that, I mean, one of the tools in that is just to actually have some really good scenarios about people's mm -hmm. pathways during retirement. Here's so-and-so and then, you know, who had to have this hip replacement and get some real figures about what that actually in, involves in cost. Oh, that's what it costs. Oh, it's not going to cost me hundreds of thousands of yeah. dollars. You know, yeah. um, what happens with, with aged care costs? There's a complete blank 
about that in in the Australian community because no one no one wants to go out and purchase particularly residential aged care. Um, so they don't they don't actually think about the costs involved and often have an overinflated you know idea. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've I've listened to people at at another asset co conference, another superannuation leader sitting on the platform talking about the costs of uh, aged care bonds as if they weren't refundable. Uh, you know, so all, all those kind of of things we need to address for people because a lot of mythology out there that uh, that has filled in. Uh, the the lack of concrete information. Mm. Yes, uh, and I know I'm jumping around a bit because I do want to come back to that concept of nudging people, and through certain architecture and support, because I think it's going to become a, a prominent topic with the retirement income covenant. Um, I I want to go back to that idea of. Um, Policymakers, because Ian and Diane, you've both just touched on throughout this session, um, perhaps working in a collegiate way so yeah. that it's not just super funds working in isolation when, when the banking industry might or the banking sector has some processes in place or best practices that we can learn from. But Ian, you've just touched on other things like understanding the cost of living, understanding the cost of aged care and healthcare. What more can policymakers be doing? Is that something that is sector specific? Are we relying on sectors to come together to have a chat about this? Or can this be done at a higher level? Ian, I'm going to throw to you first. Uh, well, some of it can actually be done uh, by what I just talked about, uh, doing scenarios. There are, there are real, I mean, we're not talking about precision, but you can certainly talk about scale uh, of what those costs might be. But look, just, I mean, it's not necessarily on our, on our specifically central, but just to take a minute to say that we have argued, CODA has argued that in the in the context of the quality advice review, we've argued that, uh, and we see super funds as the major users of this, that between so-called now general advice and personal financial advice, there ought to be a category of guidance. Mm. Um, and, that, and that super funds in particular ought to be able to provide guidance to members and in doing that, you would be better able to do so if you had access to more information on what your members' overall situation is, because super funds have very little information uh, about the total financial position of their members. Mm. We've actually said, for example, that if that that the government ought to think about the fact that the ATO could provide de-identified data about super fund members in a particular funds that would give them profiles of what kind of members you've got out there uh, that would then enable you to say to do the kind of sequencing of variables that you might address you know when you go and, and encourage someone to go and do a an online planner for example uh, what are the variables you need in there for for the type of people we've got in our fund um, and and you know there are some obvious things you ask them I think there's a lot more we can do that that piques people's interest in, oh, so now I can find out, I can look at options. Oh, there are some options out there. It's about getting them interested. And that's another reason why you need to do this, the co-design of the initial approach with the person and need to test it, as Diane said, because you've got to find out what is the, what is the trigger that will get them interested. And I might say just while I'm talking, then I'll shut up. Um, the other thing to do 
uh, about having older people is if you want to increase the digital literacy, get the guidance developed by other by older people who will tell people things like, so what you need to do now is go to that funny blue thing up in the left-hand corner instead of giving the text answer about what you've got to do and the person goes, oh, my God, I've no idea. I'll just drop out. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's that kind of stuff that makes it uh, more feasible. And all of those things, of course, are worse if you've got some degree of cognitive impairment and then you think I'm stupid when yeah. you're not. You're just not getting the tech talk that's being thrown at you. Absolutely. That that's just so critical. And that whole idea about older people being able to help other older people to be able to navigate systems, I think, is really important and particularly in this area as well, because yeah, it is it is so challenging. And I just I just want to um touch on something that um that Ian mentioned before around around this whole idea of nudging. I think to to in order to to promote, um, I guess, realistic nudges, we, we need, or well, you need the data. So you do need, as Ian said, you need to actually find out what, what the situation is of the people that you're trying to nudge. There's no point having theoretical approaches around what is a good nudge outcome or a good nudge pathway, because it is going to vary um, according to so many different factors that without the data in that your particular members, your particular group, it's virtually, it's not going to be worthwhile. And you go, and you probably like to educate people as well. Because if they if they see choices that have been promoted that do not resonate with them, they will disengage. Mm. Uh, that and, and also feel, well, I think we talked about this a little bit before, but feel very patronized and feel very misunderstood because financial well-being is so um, personal and so core to so many to everybody, but particularly to older people that um, people are very sensitive about having assumptions made about their financial situation yeah. or about their financial well-being. So it's, if you're going to do this, it has to be done properly, which will probably mean, I think, too, engaging with um, not only older people themselves as experts but expert researchers because, as you saw from some of that CPAR work, there are people who have got the um, expertise to be able to test and to be able to... Um, work out the best, I guess, approaches to finding out this information for, for your superfund. Excellent. And you, I love that you've touched on assumptions made because it leads into a question that we have from um, one of our participants and it goes, sort of goes back to the specialist team comment that Ian made before and about assumptions. So in this case, a member withdrew $1.4 million in two years and this member was well within their rights to do so, no one questioned this behaviour. If this happened at a bank, would the member have been contacted and would that have been an example of a specialist team being involved? I don't know if you can answer that, Ian, but it, um, would, it, triggered, it triggered something in the team to say, okay, this is a lot of money over two years, well within your rights to do, but is there something going on? Yeah, and, and I think it should trigger an, an inquiry. Um, and if that inquiry, uh, the initial inquiry, leads to a very sensible and understandable uh, answer, then that's fine. If it leads to a question that's got some flags in it, that's when you bring your specialists in mm. uh, to help. And and it's about going in without an assumption, but it's a courtesy call. 
the same as as I said, you know, the banks give you courtesy SMSs and so on, saying you don't usually do buy these things. And is that is that you? Can you confirm that it is you? Um, I mean, there there are limits. You can't actually in the end be the ultra protective. But I think there are some ways of of uh, raising the raising the flags um, early on and and doing it in a way, uh, as Diane said, that doesn't make an assumption, but just um, this is this is a routine courtesy. Just checking, uh, can we give you any? Is there anything we can give you information about, etc.? I think you're spot on there too, because I think super funds are. Um, some are using that sort of two-factor authentication and SMS messaging to make sure that people are aware if there's a trans transaction that perhaps may be atypical or just a typical transaction that it just triggers a, a are you, is this you, have you done this, to ensure that it's not fraud, irrespective of age or cognitive anything. It's simply a member transaction. But do you think that there is a concern perhaps at an organisational level, not an individual level, but organisational level where perhaps um, having a heavy-handed or paternalistic approach, and I'll throw to you, Diane, first, that, that, that organisations are a little too scared to perhaps have these systems in place because it, it might come across as paternalistic or ageist. Yeah. I mean, I think, that, I think it's a very reasonable concern uh, and it is a very fine line as well. Um, but maybe one way around that or one way to think about this is if, if people or organisations are very open with members, um, clients, whatever, if, if it's clearly explained in communication materials and on websites, etc., this is the approach we are taking because, and I think particularly in the current climate, um, that most people would be appreciative of the, of the effort being put, you know, put into it because what I think that that problem of being paternal, perceived paternalistic often comes through lack of clear communication and lack of transparency or perceived lack of transparency and openness in what's being done. So, um, yeah, I think I just think being open and explaining the rationale for what's going on um, is extremely important. Um, the other I just wanted to quickly, but this is a more of a side of a sidetrack to some of the scam stuff, is it's also important with phone, if you don't start doing um, double authentication and phone contacting of people, that whatever, that there's some sort of message that can come up on phones to make it very clear that this isn't a scam in and of itself or is not a random number, etc. So these communication strategies are also critical. So thinking through these things and how it can seem to somebody outside the organisation is really, really important also. Yeah, and I'll just draw you a, a kind of parallel within the aged care space at the moment. Really strong um, movement in terms of particularly home care packages for people to have greater capacity to self-manage those packages. Um, and But in doing that, as you noted in the intro, I chair a body called the Council of Elders. It's full of old people, uh, and, and over half of them have lived experience of the system. In doing that, in designing our new home care system, those same people who are quite vociferous about that we must have an assumption that people can self-manage their, their care and support are also saying, but where is the kind of fail-safe 
if things start to go awry or deteriorate. So we have to have that in the system too. And then they are talking to the designers about how you do that without people saying, ah, oh, you're tackling me just because I'm old. Um, so it can be done again. And again, I'd underline co-designing with older people about how you can do it. But but yeah. it needs to be, as Diane said, painted as this is a normal behaviour that we do across the board. Uh, you know, as you know, there's a lot of fraud and a lot of cybersecurity issues. So we have these things which, you know, and it might well be true that are, that are uh, could you might have been approached randomly uh, because we're trying all the time to be on the front foot here. Absolutely. Um, we have some questions coming through. Um, the first one is from Vishal. What steps should a super fund take once it has been established that they might be dealing with a vulnerable member where a carer family member scammer has been taking advantage of them without tipping off that person that, that they're aware that it's going on? Diane, start with you. Sorry, can, I just, can I just clarify the question? So you're saying what should a super fund do if they become aware that a family member has been um, basically abusing or financially abusing somebody? Is that is that the question? Exactly right. Yep. Yeah. I mean, to, to me, and I'm not an expert in this area, but I would have thought that firstly, as well, needing to get into one of those specialist teams that Ian was referring to um, is really, really important. Um, so that, you know, whoever finds out about it, so it needs to be systems and processes in place within the super fund. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I'm not sure what the um, the pattern of, like, reporting is, but I think being able to interact with the, the member themselves and check in with them um, and try and try to just elucidate exactly the situation and are they comfortable with what's happening, et cetera, et cetera, and prompt them perhaps. But, again, that can be extraordinarily difficult because normally there's a power imbalance between those two people. It is not something they're going to feel comfortable even talking about with the super fund themselves, you know, mm -hmm. because they're obviously going to be feeling um, pretty upset that that's what's being flagged. So yes, to be really honest, I would I wouldn't want to actually offer advice in that area, and he may have a better better answer to that question. Um, so I have the same caveat, uh, but um, we need to be aware that there are elder abuse specialists, uh, and uh, there is an organisation called Elder Abuse Action Australia (EAA) um, whose whose members uh, include those kind of specialist organisations. And uh, they are they are good, at, and your you specialist teams would learn this. How do you have a conversation that offers that as a resource? So, would you like to have a conversation? If it's, I mean, sometimes the person will say, "I, I yes, I'm, I'm not happy about that, but but I I don't I don't want to make an issue of it." You know, uh, they know how to have those conversations uh, with with people. Doesn't always work, but a lot of the time it does. So it's about connecting them to that resource uh, that is out there in the community. You don't have to be, you, while specialist teams, I think, are important, it's also about drawing on the resources that are in the community, uh, as you would if, if it was clearly um, a domestic violence situation, for example, or, you know, it's not just it's not just older people that suffer abuse, financial abuse in these contexts. There are, there are resources out there without that are about and saying to the person, I can help you think through your options here. I'm not, you know, this is anonymous. I can help you think through your options. 
And in some cases, in, in quite a few cases, the person gets enough tools to know, oh, I didn't know what to do. And I don't want to, I don't want to report them to the police. But I didn't know what to do. And thank you for giving me those resources. And I try that. That's an excellent response because this leads into another question um, from Christina. And I think this goes towards knowing what resources are out there so that um, people operating in super funds know where to direct their members to. So again, this is on um, uh, people that might be suffering financial abuse from a family member or a third party. Um, uh, are there any mechanisms for reporting um, an enduring power of attorney for potential misconduct? So super funds might be dealing with someone who has a, a power of attorney and there's systemic behaviours that are recognised that might not be within the best interests of the member. What resources might be available? Um, so I'm going to make a point here that between the Age Discrimination Commissioner, ourselves, and the Australian Banking Association, we have been hammering attorneys general and state and at the federal level for several some years now since the uh, uh, Law Reform Commission report into elder abuse for the uh, alignment of power of attorney laws and provisions around Australia because the answer to your question is it varies in state to state. So in some cases, there's action that can be swiftly taken and in others, there's it's much harder. Uh, we need um, aligned, uh, if not all simultaneous, you know, uh, the same laws uh, in every state and territory so that then there can be a national register that is meaningful. And we would really love for the super funds to bring some of their clout into that argument as well. Um, and we'd be, we'd be really happy to follow you up after this about that, because that is a tool that ought to be available so that you can you can raise that question uh, without, you know, without an assumption of guilt, but you can raise that question uh, with proper authorities. Um, and and we, we should we should have that capacity in the law and it, it varies around the country. Excellent. I would let's have a chat about that. So thank you, Christina, for that. Great question. Um, I'm going to mark now. Um, is part of the answer to ensure people have good financial literacy from their 20s so that when cognitive decline commences, they have a depth of knowledge and you're both shaking, you're yes. both nodding. So, Diane, you go first. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, that would be the ideal <laughs> because we also know that as, people's, as people cognitively age, um, the way they make decisions changes mm. and um, draw a lot more on, I guess, knowledge, I guess, knowledge that's accumulated across the lifetime and uh, use that knowledge to make, I guess, shortened or heuristic decisions. So instead of having to cope with a whole heap of new information, they are able to draw on information that they already know. So, yes, big yes to that. But then, of course, there's the issue of motivation. There's the issue of relevance. There's a whole lot of issues. And also, I think this is where ageism comes in, even internalised ageism comes down to respect for the whole process of ageing so that it's it's actually a good thing that you're trying to plan for, that you need to engage with, that you want to think about, um, rather than it being something that you just never want to think is going to happen to you. So that's where, that's where the messaging actually has to start, at that really, really basic respect for getting older, which is a huge issue that goes across all the areas that I know Ian and all of us are involved in. So that's a bit of a big general, big picture answer to what you just asked. 
So just very briefly, because I did say earlier, very early on in this discussion in response to a question of yours, that the more financial literacy the person accumulates over time, uh, the more that more resilience they will have in the face of cognitive uh, impairment. Uh, because often, uh, I mean, if you don't have it, then nudging you into the right space isn't going to be that helpful if, if the resource actually isn't there. But many times in terms of cognitive uh you know, cognitive issues. It's about the nudge that points you back to what you already know you should be doing, but you've wandered off track, so to speak, uh, yeah. or, missed, or missed a step, just missed a step. And so, yes, absolutely, a big, big protection is ensuring. And, and for the next some years, I think, mixture of financial literacy and digital literacy or system literacy. Mm -hmm. Really. Um, we, this is our last question from our participants, um, Tika, so apologies if I mispronounced that. How does the financial advice piece change in the event of dealing with a member with cognitive decline that is progressing? So they're aware of their condition and they're trying to get their financial affairs in order during lucid periods. Diane, what more could, what could, uh, how could they be supported through that? Well, I guess the first thing, is it, as Ian was mentioning, is just... Um, raise the power of attorney issue with them, make sure that that they do have that. I mean, they probably will if they know that they have, if they've acknowledged they have cognitive impairment, they probably will be thinking about that. But that, of course, is critical. But then in terms of practical things, I think um, it's really important to be able to have the capacity so that you can have those one-on-one -on -one conversations, as we as you mentioned before, being able to have the same person that they talk to, being able to have a person-to-person -person on the phone type of conversation. Also, I know from talking to some of our members, you know, having a follow-up letter, for instance, outlining the things that were talked about um, in simple dot form, that then they can go back to that letter after the phone conversation and then read it quietly themselves, be able to, it gives them time to absorb the information because a lot of the time when people are experiencing cognitive impairment it is the problem is being able to absorb and retain new information so a phone call is not going to cut it if there's not something to back it up right um so i think having some systems and processes in place like that which is not going to be necessarily for everybody but if someone identifies themselves as look i'm really struggling with my memory i'm going to need a reminder on what you've talked about can you please send me something out? And that something needs to be really well designed. So there's no point having, a, you know, a document this thick with the policy in it. That's not going to help. You need to have something that is targeted to the needs of the person that needs it. So I agree with all of that, and I, but I would add to it in terms of external resources that our colleagues in Dementia Australia have a huge amount of resource and guidance and the Dementia Helpline uh, it should be a resource that people are encouraged to use. Absolutely. Uh, and and uh, you interact. I mean, funds can in, could approach them in terms of what we call the basic training, the screening training that they look for. That's excellent. Thank you both so much today. That wraps it up. I'm sure we could keep talking all afternoon. Um, so perhaps we'll have you back at some point too because this is such um, important work that you're both doing. And I've learned so much from you today. So hopefully our participants have can go away with some things that they can implement from today onwards to help people. So thank you to you both. Um, and just to close off, make sure um, to improve your experience, we ask that participants complete a short survey on this. So a link to the survey 
will appear in your browser at the conclusion of this webinar. For those of you that feel like tuning in again, the recording will be available on our portal within the next three business days. So thank you all for joining us and thank you so much, Ian and Diane. It's been a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank Thanks. you very much. Thank you. No worries. Okay. Bye, Bye to everyone. Bye. That's all for this episode of Super Talk. For more episodes and for more information on the work of AAST, please visit our website at aast.asn.au. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast.